Radio.ie hosts the Irish History Show podcast because history matters. Radio turns 100 years young this year. Radio's history is powered by Radio Archives. For radio archiving solutions from people passionate about radio, visit radio.ie. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Show. My name is Cahill Brennan and as always I'm joined by my co-presenter John Dorney from theirishstory.com. Radio.ie hosts the Irish History Show podcast because history matters. Radio turns 100 years young this year. Radio's history is powered by Radio Archives. For radio archiving solutions from people passionate about radio, visit radio.ie. You can follow us on Twitter at Irish History Pod or on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash The Irish History Show. If you get a chance, please rate and review the show on iTunes, Spotify, or whichever platform you get your podcasts on, as it really helps us and we really appreciate it. If you'd like to listen back to any previous episodes of the show, you can go to our website, irishhistoryshow.ie. Now this week, we were going to talk about Kill Michael and Tom Barry. So we decided, John, to pick a fairly uncontroversial topic to yeah. discuss, one that people don't really have strong views on one way or the other. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, nice uh, change of pace for us there. Nice change of pace. So we just had the 100th anniversary of the Kill Michael ambush, and I nearly said, based on some of the coverage of it, to Kill Michael Massacre, yeah. as some people would say, but... Before we start, probably the most important character involved in all this is Tom Barry. Can you tell us about Tom Barry? Yeah, Tom Barry commanded the Kilmichael ambush. At that time, he was the column leader for Cork Number no. 3 Brigade. He recently just been made the, the column leader. But before that, he served in the British Army from 1915 to 1918. He was served in Mesopotamia, what's now Iraq, as an artilleryman. So he joined the army at 17 and he operated an artillery piece uh, for the Royal Field Artillery. He saw action at Samara, Kut and Fallujah. So places that have seen action, in inverted commas, in more recent times. But British interest at the time was actually originally securing Basra and the southern ports of Iraq so that their oil fields in Persia wouldn't be under threat. And then they ended up moving further into Iraq. A whole load of them got stuck at the city of Kut or Al-Kut. Mostly Indian troops, but they were cut off and surrounded. And um, what Barry was involved in was an attempt to relieve them. And that came to grief. The garrison had to surrender. It was a big, it was almost like the Singapore of World War One, actually. But then, you know, he was involved in subsequent advances. They did in the end push the Turks, the Ottoman Turks, way back. They took over Baghdad and all the way up to the north of Iraq, where when the war finished. But Barry, by that time, had been pulled back to Egypt. He was garrisoned in Egypt. He was supposed to be sent to the Western Front, but the war ended before he got there. And yeah, he came back to Cork and. You might think from his memoir, Guerrilla Days in Ireland, which is very largely, I would say, a work of self-aggrandizement, that he joined the IRA straight away. And he says in his memoir that he heard the news of the Easter Rising when he was over in Iraq or Mesopotamia, and he immediately became a convert to Republican nationalism. But that's not quite the case, actually, when he came back to Cork. Well, most of our understanding of Tom Barry comes from, as you mentioned there, his autobiography, probably one of the most famous autobiographies of the period, along with Dan Brain and Ernie O'Malley. 
Tom Barry's would be one of the probably the top three. But in the last while, even very recently in the last uh, week or two, we have a lot more information to go on, including <clears throat> the pension reports. Yeah. Now, credit where it's due, this isn't all my work. Sean Gannon brought to my attention the work of Jerry White, who unearthed Tom Barry's British military record. Uh, and that really feels a reasonably unremarkable war service. Um, we had some disciplinary issues, but nothing connected with Irish nationalism, as far as we know. And also, what's interesting is that Jerry White unearthed Barry's application to join the British Civil Service. Uh, he failed an exam in 1990 to join the British Civil Service, and he requested a posting to India. Now, we're not exactly sure what, what kind of posting he wanted, but he, he seems determined to have got a public job. And he gave a speech at the Ex-Servicemen's Association, which again, Jerry White and Sean Gannon have, have unearthed where he called for war veterans to be given preferential treatment and employment. This is in Cork in, in 1919. And he was secretary of the ex-servicemen's association. So that's told one part of the story. And that's, you won't find that obviously in guerrilla days. Secondly, his IRA military pension application, which dates from 1940. So a long time after events, has recently been digitized and released. And all credit here to the Irish military archives and to the military service pension collection. who have done unbelievable work in getting at these sources. But Barry's pension file from 1940 is 245 pages long. You know, it's, it's almost bigger than guerrilla days and, and it's probably a lot more informative in many ways because to get a pension, I mean, Barry claimed from the very start, from August 1919 up until the end of the Civil War, December 1923, he claimed an A pension. So, you know, an IRA officer, top ranking IRA officer for the whole time. Now, the pension board didn't believe him. And so they grilled him. They brought him in for interview three times. They brought in all his references and they brought in other guys who had been there to see if they could verify his testimony. So it's incredibly detailed and, and it sheds an awful lot of light on, on events. Well, we should put it in context as well that at the start of 1919, you have the first meeting of the Dáil that's based on the end of 1918, the general election where Sinn Féin sweep the boards really and get 73 seats out of 106 and they form their own independent legislature in Dublin. But at the same time, you have huge number of returning ex-servicemen who had fought in the First World War. And it's not clear that all of these ex-servicemen are loyalists or unionists or opposed to the new dispensation, the new republicanism that's growing in Dublin. And that's a very interesting situation, especially in places like Cork, where you have large numbers of returning ex-servicemen and you have British soldiers and RIC and auxiliaries based in Cork. One of the interesting things, actually, it's a kind of a tangent to, to the Tom Barry story, but an interesting thing is that, you know, around 200,000 Irishmen served in the war, between 30 and 50,000 lost their lives in the war. Um, so you'd have expected around 150,000 to come back, but actually the number that came back was under 100,000. So I, I do wonder what happened to the rest of them. Maybe they settled in Britain or, or elsewhere. However, I mean, to answer your question, you have a large number of, of recruits going back to places like Cork where there's heavy recruitment uh, and Dublin and obviously and the north and, and but obviously other towns as well, like, you know, Curtis and Clamell, you know, typical recruiting grounds. And it's not entirely clear at first what way their loyalties will go. I mean, an awful lot of them attend, for example, the first armistice day, as Barry does himself, uh, where the union flag is raised and where God Save the Queen is, is played and so on. And at the same time, you have Republicans recruiting into the volunteers. You've got young men flocking into that. You've got initial kind of shots fired between them and the RIC, although in 1919, it was fairly restrained. By early 1920, you have war veterans brought in to the police, from mostly from Britain, the Black and Tans as we know them, and later in the year, the auxiliaries. 
later in 1920. So it's a combustible mixture, yes. And it, while the war veterans had military training, and many of them would have been Irish nationalists by tradition and by upbringing, generally speaking, they weren't trusted by Republicans. What you really find, which is surprising when you dig into the statistics, is there's actually statistically very few war veterans in the IRA. Like you would have expected them to recruit a lot more, but actually they're they're of the order of, of five to ten percent of the IRA, really small percentage. Well, whatever distrust there was about Barry being a veteran of the First World War, he also had to contend with the fact that he came from an RIC family as well. Correct. Yes, his father was an RIC officer. Yeah, and so like. The average person, I think, before the First World War wouldn't have read into that too much. I mean, it would have been just like a Gardasun, I think, in many ways. But certainly in separatist eyes, that march was the enemy. Like, even as something as mundane as the GAA had a ban on members of the RIC playing their games, for example. In the eyes of people who had joined the IRB and the volunteers prior to the First World War, certainly, that would have been a black mark against them too, yes. And along with being an ex-serviceman, and as you say, attending Armistice Day ceremonies in the wake of the First World War... He also got involved in the ex-servicemen's associations, serving on their committee as well. He did, exactly, in Bandon, which was not quite where he was from. He wasn't. He was from outside of Bandon, but his, his nearest town, Bandon. He was the secretary of the ex-servicemen's association, which was headed by the Earl of Bandon. And the Earl of Bandon was you know, a hardcore unionist, actually, which probably wouldn't surprise us too much, I suppose. It was an associate of the Earl of Middleton, you know, just which is the next parish over, which, as, as you know, Cahill, you researched this, the Earl of Middleton was the head of the Southern Unionists. And even some of the people who didn't like him in the IRA, like Ted O'Sullivan, who seems to have really disliked Barry on a personal level. But Ted O'Sullivan said to Ernie O'Malley in later years that Tom Barry, when he came home from the war, was not only associated with the ex-servicemen, but with an organisation called the Anti-Sinn Féin Society, which was some sort of loyalist organisation in West Cork. And there's all kinds of controversies about what they did in later years, but it was a name really for militant loyalists. So it appears then on that reading that Barry comes home from the war and all he wants to do is get public employment in the British Empire again. And the fact that he can't get that, the fact that he fails the exam, doesn't get posted to India, that turns him into a rebel. But Barry, in his Irish military pension, has a whole different story. And this lies at the heart of a lot of the disputes when Tom Barry actually got involved in the IRA. And it may not seem like a big deal to say he got involved in this month or a following month or a couple of months in between, but it does have a big bearing on his career in the IRA during the War of Independence. Yeah, I mean, you know, given the evidence that we have and the evidence as it's been presented, the first thing is Barry came home from the First World War and he was a committed separatist. That's in guerrilla days. We can pretty much kind of discount that, I think. Second version is you know, he comes home and he's a loyal veteran and he's in the ex-servicemen's association and he speaks for them actually at public meetings and he's the secretary of the local branch. And so he becomes an IRA man because he feels rejected because he can't get into the civil service and so on. And because of the next service, was killed by British troops. Now, that's the second version. But the third version, which, and I think the truth lies between versions two and three, is Barry's version, which he gives to the pension board. Because in guerrilla days, he doesn't talk at all about that, about coming home to the ex-servicemen and so on. Barry's version to the pension board is he applied to join the volunteers as soon as he got back to Cork. This has been corroborated by an unfriendly witness, so I'd say it's true. So Florio Dunyahu in Cork City, who was the intelligence officer for one brigade, which is in Cork City, says, yes, Barry came in to meet him in August of 1919 and asked to join the volunteers. But Dunyahu didn't know whether to trust him because he was ex-British Army, and also he wasn't from the area. So he said, go back and join your local company in Bandon. And what Sean Buckley, who was the intelligence officer in Bandon, or in, in that battalion, said, 
and that the, well, the battalion of that brigade said was, yes, I took Barry on and he did intelligence work for me, but we couldn't have him openly in the volunteers because he was infiltrating the ex-servicemen's association force. He attended their convention in Dublin and he wrote a report for me and for Charlie Hurley, who was one of the heads of the brigade at the time. And so that appears to square the circle. I say, okay, well, I mean, that, that makes sense now. So Barry was only pretending to be a loyal veteran. However, when you look, start to look at the chronology, this falls apart because Barry says, yes, he attended the ex-servicemen. He was reporting back to the IRA. He says he was also associating with British officers in the hotels and band and drinking with them and getting information out of them and passing it to the IRA. And he said when he was found out, which he puts at October 1919, they beat him up. He said, I took a hiding. And that finished him with intelligence. Now, that doesn't square with what he did, what's in the public record, because he spoke at a meeting in Cork City of veterans in November 1919, and he applied for the posting to India in February 1920. So it's probably truer to say, first of all, that he was wavering in his loyalties. He did have Republican sympathies. I don't think that he joined the IRA at that date. And the reason I don't think that is because the man who was the head of the brigade's recruitment, Liam Deasy, in the pension, and Flor Begley, said, no, that's not true. That's just not true. We knew Barry was associated with Sean Buckley. We knew he was talking to Sean Buckley, who was an intelligence officer in I.O., but he wasn't an IRA member until the second half of 1920. So it looks as if Barry's route is a lot more tortuous. And what's possibly the tipping point is something that Jerry White again uncovered, which is that Barry's last act for the ex-servicemen's association was in July of 1920, when he acted as guard of honour for a man called John Burke. And John Burke was a former Munster Fusilier who was killed in a riot with the British Army in Cork City in 1920. It was bayoneted. And there was a big demonstration of ex-servicemen who marched to the garrison and they apparently smeared blood on the gates or so the story goes. But Barry, you know, could well have seen this as well. This is the final nail in the coffin. This is how veterans are treated. You know, they're bayoneted in their, their own city. Why is it a big deal? Well, it's probably a big deal because Barry went out of his way to deny it so much that this was the case, that he was wavering in his loyalties and one thing might have pushed him over the line. It's also more interesting now that we have more evidence, I think. It shows the kind of choices people might have had to make in early 1920. Well, whatever date he did eventually join the IRA, he did become quite a prominent member in Cork, probably the area in Ireland that was seeing the most intense fighting during the War of Independence. Yes, and very localised like West Cork as well. Liam Deasy, again, who doesn't seem to have cared for Barry all that much as a person, nevertheless says that he, he threw himself into the work, the training, with an astonishing dynamism. So, you know, Barry had military training. The volunteers, this is second half of 1920. Now, by this point, we're in a guerrilla war. They need people with military training to train them. And Barry immediately proves himself through his commitment and his skills, actually. Now, one of the kind of puzzles that's remaining about this is Barry wasn't an infantryman in World War I, let alone an infantry officer let alone someone trained in special operations or anything like that. He was just a gunner. All he'd done in the war was operate an artillery piece, to the best of anyone's knowledge anyway. And yet Barry had this special aptitude for guerrilla warfare, for small unit tactics, for boldness, you might say, and also for ruthlessness. Now, Barry's memoir, which we've talked about, and it's so famous, it possibly has inflated a little bit the reputation of 3rd Cork Brigade, West Cork, at the expense of the other brigades in Cork, because there was as many casualties uh, on both sides in 1st Brigade in, in Cork City. And not so much in his court, but certainly in Brigades 1 and 3. And Barry wasn't the only officer. There was also company attacks, which Barry had nothing to do with in, in West Cork. But certainly, yes, I mean, it, Barry commanded the largest actions in West Cork and possibly in all of Ireland during the War of Independence. 
there's probably a term we should explain to people who haven't heard it before, and that is flying column. So when people see flying column, what does that mean exactly? Yeah, this is a tactic that the IRA kind of stumbled across in the late summer of 1920. So just to explain the way the IRA was organized. So it came from the Irish volunteers. Each locality had a company. The company was part of a battalion. It was typically six to eight companies. You might have 100 men in a company, but it very much varied. It, you know, it was organized in this kind of hierarchical regular army imitation, let's say, which wasn't at all suitable for guerrilla warfare. When the guerrilla war starts, and really for my money, it starts in early 1920 when the IRA's leadership in Dublin, Mulcahy and Collins, order them to start attacking barracks and police barracks get, get attacked, they get burned down. You have kind of opportunistic attacks on, on the police and to a lesser extent to the army, mainly trying to take their arms. And it's mostly this local company thing, or occasionally they're like the officers of a brigade who might be the most committed. The British fight back, of course, in the summer of 1920, they send in from early 1920, but especially from the summer of 1920, they send in the Black and Tans, the war veterans recruits into the RSC. They send in the auxiliaries who were an adjunct to the RSC, uh, heavily armed, they're ex-officers from, from the war. They send in more military, although at this stage, it's, it's mostly the, these auxiliary police. And so if life becomes much harder for the IRA, they start to get beaten up, they start to get arrested, killed. The leader of 3rd Brigade, uh, Tom Hales, for example, who didn't like Barry and apparently didn't want to recruit him, was arrested and he was tortured by the Essex Regiment in West Cork. His fingernails were pulled out. You know, that's what you're looking at. Other people were killed. And so a lot of men had to go on the run. You also needed to have like a small group of well-armed men. Remember, the IRA had very few arms. You needed a small group of well-armed men who could operate in a brigade area. So like the brigade area in West Cork is, is quite large. You know, you're probably looking at an, in excess of a thousand members on the books, but you need a much smaller group, a group of less than 100 who can get the arms together and who can carry out actual attacks uh, on these kind of toughened up crown forces. And that's what a flying column was. Now, in theory, a flying column was a full-time unit. It was a paid unit. In Dublin, the ASU, which is the actually in the IRA, you know, the flying column was just a nickname. The term was active service unit, ASU. In Dublin, the ASU was paid and so on. I'm not sure that applied in a rural area like West Cork. And I'm not sure it was so, let's say, tightly contained. Like what Barry talks about in his memoir, and what others talk about is you called on people for a particular operation, a particular job. You'd have a small core and you call on reliable people from the local company to participate. So I, I think it, it's a bit more fluid than we think. But a flying column is a mobile group that would gather together, bring arms out of dumps and go on what they called a job, like a military operation. We should talk as well about the policy of reprisals and the treatment of civilians and also the property and things like creameries in the areas that were subject to reprisal attacks from the Crown forces. What was that like in Cork, in that area in West Cork, in that period in the later half of 1920? I'm not sure West Cork exactly had seen a major reprisal yet, but you're absolutely right, Carl. The second half of 1920 is punctuated by these reprisals. So if a policeman was shot or a soldier was shot or there was an attack on them, the Crown forces would typically roll into the nearest town and they would burn down the town hall, Creamery, which is a place where all the farmers would have to bring their dairy produce, especially in a dairy producing region like Cork. They would burn down the Creamery, they would burn down the Sinn Féin Hall, and they would shoot any suspects they could find. And this happened from Balbriggan to Trim to Tum to Mallow in North Cork. And this informs things like Barry talks about in his memoir about, you know, the terrorists of Crown forces. 
Well, obviously, that's rhetoric, but I mean, the strategy of Crown Forces appears to have been to terrorize the population. You know, Lloyd George's famous phrase, we have murdered by the throat. It, it appears to have had tacit sanction that the Crown Forces were going to carry out these kind of collective reprisals, burning down houses, burning down buildings, shooting suspects, also kind of shooting randomly at civilians. Like, for example, in County Galway, there's a young woman, Ellen Quinn, who was sitting with her baby on a wall and the auxiliaries, I think, rolled past and, and just fire randomly shoot her dead. Uh, so, you know, when civilians see a convoy of auxiliaries or, or I see black and tans approaching, they run away because they don't know what they're going to do. So there's this climate of fear. One of the things to mention is the week before Kill Michael, Michael Collins had his counterstroke against this at Bloody Sunday in Dublin. So, you know, the, the standard narrative is that it's part of the intelligence war and he's wiping out British agents. And that's true. But it's, it's also this thing of like, let's say, rebalancing the balance of terror. So who, who are people going to be more afraid of, which is kind of the way, unfortunately, these kind of conflicts work. Well, the auxiliaries in particular seem to have had an air of invincibility about them, that they were really having a serious effect on the IRA and the morale of the local population. So we could probably get into now Kilmichael itself and probably the effect that this attack had on the perception of the auxiliaries as a fighting force. Yeah, well, just before we get to Kilmichael itself, we should mention who these particular auxiliaries were. So this was C Company, or, or a section of C Company, of the auxiliaries, which was based in McCroom Castle, technically outside of 3rd Brigade. It was in one, one brigade area in Cork. Now, C Company had been raiding. They'd taken over from regular soldiers, actually, from the Manchester Regiment. And, and they appeared to have overrun the IRA in the weeks and months leading up to Kilmichael, because it had been quite an active area. There'd been an ambush on British troops which Barry was involved in at Turin, although not in command. But the auxiliaries were much more aggressive than the regular soldiers. They were motorised, they were heavily armed, and they do seem to have overawed the local IRA, at least temporarily. The auxiliaries of C Company were all veterans of the Great War, like Barry. Quite a few of them were veterans of the Air Force, actually, but some of them um, had been gassed in the war and so on. Their war experience had been quite full on in terms of combat. They apparently had only killed one local man, though, so far. Now, it doesn't excuse that, but... What happened was one of these typical things where they pulled up in a rural area and uh, a man was working in the fields and he ran away, quite understandably, and they just opened fire and shot him in the back. That, as far as I know, was the only local man they had killed up to that point. But they had overrode, I would say, the local population before the Kilmichael ambush. So we should get into now the actual Kilmichael ambush and the planning and the thought behind it. What was the logistics of Kilmichael? The logistics were, you first of all had to gather all the available weapons, and there wasn't an awful lot of them. You know, they had some weapons they'd taken off the police and the British Army. They had weapons they'd taken off the Coast Guard. There had been a raid on the Coast Guard earlier in the year um, who had a, a different type of rifle, actually. They had Canadian RAS rifles. They had shotguns, whatever shotguns they managed to, to get together, and a few handguns. So they managed to get 36 weapons together. Some of the men Barry assembled, he assembled 36 men, according to his own account. I think the military pension files reveals a different number. I can't recall what it is. But Barry does this thing of sending out messengers to men from the local companies who had been at these training camps that he had run in September and October. And th this gives you an idea of the kind of way a flying column was assembled. The guy was at home or he was on the run, depending. And he was told to assemble at a certain point. And they got the column together, handed out the arms, which had been got out of the dumps, like long arms, they called them. Rifles were usually dumped between operations because you couldn't be caught going around with them. And so Barry had noticed quite astutely that Colonel Crake of the auxiliaries had taken to using the same road every day between Dunmanway and McCrew. Now, I gather 
this is a cardinal sin in guerrilla warfare to keep taking the same route every day. So Barry noticed that as they were doing this, they fall into this pattern. The townland of Kilmichael presented a good place for an ambush. Why? Because the road turned sharply. It was a sharp bend in the road. So this meant that you could carry out what military today would call an L-shaped ambush. This means there's one party right in front of them and a stone wall and one party beside them. They can fire from two different directions without hitting each other. And that was the plan. There was also a command post up on a, a hillock, which could you know, oversee the situation. Now, again, now we're getting into the accounts of Kilmichael. There's no British accounts because all the auxiliaries bar one were killed. There's some IRA accounts, but they're all from quite a long while after. We mainly have to go with Barry's account. Now, what's significant about Barry's account is he goes out of his way to say these auxiliaries have come in and they were terrorists and so on. They were terrorizing the neighborhood. They were overawing the people. And we needed to give them a good shock and to show that they were beatable. And he says it was kill or be killed. And he says there was no line of escape for the ambush. He said he intended to wipe out the auxiliaries. That's what he says in his memoir. And you might think that this is some Barry's bombast and he was a very bombastic man. But some of the other veterans also, when they later gave statements to the Bureau of Military History, said the same thing. They said that there wasn't any escape route planned. It was very unusual ambush in that regard. And that the plan was to, to wipe out this column of auxiliaries. The other aspect of it is it was a very close in ambush. Like if you compare it to, for example, the action at Turin, which was the previous month. At Turin, they had fired from quite a distance away. They had escape routes, you know, they were concealed. And the British column that the ambush surrendered actually, and they were there was, I think, two or three of them killed and the rest were taken prisoner. The weapons were taken and then they were let go, which was much more common. And Kilmichael wasn't like that. The ambush points were almost point blank range right beside where they expected to engage these lorries of auxiliaries. So they waited there. A lot, a lot of guerrilla warfare was waiting around, you know, not knowing if they were going to show up. They waited around and it was a very cold November day. And they had tea sent from the local houses. So obviously the local people were sympathetic but there was cold, drenching rain. It was just around this time of year, of course. It, and it was just about dusk. It was just about four or five o'clock when the two auxiliary lorries appeared. And Barry's personal role in the ambush was quite brave. It was a very dangerous role that he took on himself. Yeah, or, or so he says in his memoir. Like everything, this is all disputed. So what Barry said in the memoir was he was wearing a volunteer uniform, but it was designed to look like a British uniform. And some of his men were wearing captured um, British helmets as well by their own admission. And he, he says that he stood out in the road, told them to halt, and then threw a grenade into the first lorry. There's now another story in West Cork that a, a local man called Sonny Crowley fired the first shot and, and so on. So maybe Barry's version isn't true, but who knows? Certainly Barry took the lead. What we do know is the first lorry approached this bend in the road and they're engaged at point blank range. A grenade is thrown in to the cab as well. Uh, the driver was killed immediately. And the Auxiliaries in the first lorry appeared to be wiped out very quickly. So the bomb went up in their carriage. They were engaged at really close range, four or five yards. Barry says in his memoir, they were killed in the end using revolvers, butts and bayonets, as well as bullets. So, you know, right hand-to-hand combat. And the second lorry, meanwhile, behind them had been engaged by the other party, which was, as I said, up on a hillock. This lorry had a little bit more time to react. So they managed to get out of their lorry and they were engaging the IRA from the roadside, a number of the IRA in the second party, three of them were shot and killed, or one fatally wounded, a couple of others wounded as well. So it's quite an intense firefight. But then Barry brought the first squad, the squad that had wiped out the first lorry, to bear in the second one. And at this point, the auxiliaries were pretty much finished because they were caught in a trap between two fires. 
Well, this is probably the point where we get to the very, very contentious and controversial aspects of Kill Michael and something that is still hugely debated and books are being written about it up to the present day. The idea of the false surrender. Yeah. So before I get into detail, I'm going to just give my opinion on this. Right. So Barry says in his memoir that they shout out to the auxiliaries, do you surrender? And they said, yes, we surrender. And they threw down their arms, but then they pulled out their revolvers and they shot dead two of the IRA men. I don't believe that to be the case. I don't think that's an accurate representation of what happened because this is very close quarters. The auxiliaries are facing life and death. They're separated from each other. They're lying on the roadside. Now, the idea that they could get together in some sort of huddle, like a football team before a match, and say, oh, let's do the false surrender trick. No, it's it's ridiculous. That wouldn't have happened. Does that mean that Barry's making it up? Not entirely, I don't think, because two of the other men who were there in their bureau statements say, at two points, some of the auxiliaries put up their hands and tried to surrender, and others kept on firing. And they said a number of men were hit, whether they were killed or wounded. They differ on. I think that's what happened. I think, you know, you're in a terribly confused situation. Some of the auxiliaries tried to surrender to save their lives, and others kept on firing, is what I think happened. Now, what Barry says is, after that point, he said, we're not taking any prisoners. And he said, I've seen enough of their false surrender tricks, and I said, keep on firing and don't stop till I tell you. Again, that's not what happened, because it's contradicted by a lot of the other accounts that were there. So certainly there was a number of attempts, you know, by some auxiliaries to surrender. There was confusion and attempts to surrender, yes. A number of IRA men seemed to have been hit as a result, yes. But we know the number were taken prisoner and that they were killed then. We have that from the testimony of the men who were there. We know that the other auxiliaries, when the IRA moved in to the ambush spot, were lying wounded and they were killed. Some of them appeared to have reached for their weapons while lying wounded and, and they were bayoneted and killed. Others of them were found by the autopsy with a shot through the ribs under the armpits, which means that they were shot with their hands in the air. So we know that they attempted to surrender and were were then shot. You can take it a number of ways. You might go into why this might have happened, but I'm pretty sure that Barry's kind of clean account where there's a very clear sequence of events. You know, there's the attack, there's the false surrender, then there's no more prisoners taken. I don't think that's what happened. I think it's a lot messier. And, And we know for sure that a number of auxiliaries were killed while wounded or while trying to surrender in the final stage of the fighting. As you describe it there, and as we can imagine as well, with so many people in the middle of a firefight, everyone is at such close quarters, people are being killed. Why do you think there was such a necessity to describe the situation in the way that participants had, including Barry afterwards, that you had this idea of a false surrender and obviously the IRA volunteers had been shot after this point? Why not just say that it was a very confused and dangerous situation and people got killed and it couldn't be a clean fight. Well, I think it's because of the propaganda war at the time and how it seeped into later tellings. So what the British account of the event was, the British, I think, military reinforcements or auxiliaries came on the scene after and they found all these broken bodies and they'd been shot multiple times, clubbed in the head with rifle bullets, some of them. And according to another testimony, a local farmer had actually driven his cattle over the site after that would have further disfigured the bodies. So the version the British released was that the men were massacred and they were hacked to death with axes. And it was a brutal massacre. And there was this implication that the IRA had worn British uniforms and tricked them and they had disarmed them and then killed them all with axes. So they were reacting against that, I suspect. Barry wants his version to be the opposite of that. You know, that it was the enemy who were the deceitful ones who broke the laws of war. Well, in terms of public morale for the Crown forces and the British government, this comes very soon 
on the heels of Bloody Sunday and losing so many British officers and intelligence officers in Dublin. And we had the ceremonial aspect of the big funerals in, in London and uh, bringing the bodies home from Dublin. What effect would Kill Michael have had, not just on British public opinion, but on the morale of the IRA as well? Yeah, it was a massive morale boost for the IRA. And, you know, in terms of, as we said, you know, the auxiliaries hadn't been taken on before. They had been overrun IRA to a certain extent. And the fact that a column had been totally destroyed of auxiliaries. So there were 17 auxiliaries killed um, at Kilmichael and one left for dead. One actually got away and he was found by a local IRA company and killed. But effectively, there was a column of 18 auxiliaries just wiped out. So it showed what could be done, I suppose, by this new flying column tactic. In terms of British public opinion, yeah, you're right. And just like the men after Bloody Sunday, you know, the coffins are taken, draped in the Union Jack and they're, you know, ceremonially brought through Dublin Port and brought back to England for big, lavish funerals, which is one of the aspects of events in Ireland. So, for example, at the end of this period, after the treaty was signed in the debates in Westminster, I think, and this is from Ronan Fanning's book, The Fatal Path, there was a question asked, how many British servicemen have lost their lives in Ireland in the last few years? They rummaged through the figures and they said, yeah, it's about 500 that's slower than the figure we have today but it's the figure they had and there was kind of contented size all around the house of the commons they said only 500 ah that was nothing but a bad morning on the western front but what's different is that you know every death in the western front wasn't reported you didn't see all the coffins filing back so the moral effect of it was different you know the conflict in ireland was very different in that respect it was a propaganda war the Kilmichael ambush was a big blow in the propaganda war and what it showed as well was that the ira was becoming a serious military force not just, if you like, terrorists or gunmen, but also, you know, quite capable guerrilla soldiers. Well, that's the thing as well. The portrayal of the IRA as bandits, undisciplined, incapable of launching serious military attacks. Kilmichael sort of put an end to that concept, didn't it? It did, very much so, yeah. One of the reasons I think that we're discussing it as well is obviously we had the 100th anniversary there recently, but... About 15 years ago, probably a little less than 15 years ago, this became a major issue as well. And what we could call the evolving history wars in Ireland and the whole concept of revisionism. And this was debated on several sides, particularly the idea of the false surrender, but largely seems to have been reignited by the late historian Peter Hart's work about the IRA and its enemies where he covered Kilmichael and Tom Barry and the general IRA campaign in Cork. Yeah, Peter Hart opens his book, or it's the second chapter of his book, The IRA and Its Enemies with an Account of Kilmichael. And Hart very much cleaves to this view that Tom Barry is a liar and that what happened was the auxiliaries were taken prisoner and then they were all killed out of hand, killed as prisoners, massacred, if you will. And it cleaves very closely to the British version of events at the time, except that it doesn't talk about them being chopped up with axes, as the British version at the time said. Apart from that, it's it's more or less the same. And what's really controversial about this is that Hart seems to have interviewed a lot of local people. He has anonymous interviewees as sources in his book, which is poor form. Uh, And the idea that Hart said he protected their identity for their own safety, I guess, you know, Hart interviewed them in the 1980s and he published in the 1990s. So, you know, around 70 years after events, I don't think that's very credible. I don't think it's very ethical. And I still consult Hart's work. I mean, I'm increasingly skeptical about how reliable it is when I see other sources. You know, for example, he's a lot of very nice quotes when I was looking at the ones about Tom Barry in his early life. 
one saying it could have gone either way in 1919. Now, maybe that's true. We have evidence, you know, that might support that. But it's an anonymous quote. It's a little bit like series five of The Wire, where the journalist invents the quotes that are too good to be true. So there's a real problem there. Now, you know, if we want to get into the nitty gritty, apparently Hart's anonymous interviewees are based on people who were interviewed by a priest, Father Chisholm, in the 1960s. And Eve Morrison has a book coming out to these effect. Now, I can't speak to that. I don't know. I will say that the other IRA accounts that are surviving, and we have a few more of them now, none of them support this idea that it was a straightforward massacre. And Hart's quotes to that effect, if they come from the Chisholm papers, the Chisholm tapes, I don't know, but they have to be discounted because they're anonymous and nobody can verify them. Now, that's the kind of methodological part of it. The other part of it is like, at the time when Hart published this, you know, it was the 1990s, the Northern Ireland Troubles were just about ending, fizzling out. And so Hart's work very much was adopted by the likes of, say, Kevin Myers and Owen Harris and journalists in, in contemporary Ireland to show that the old IRA were just murderers. They were no better than the original IRA. This was the narrative. They didn't engage in honorable combat, that they murdered prisoners and they were liars and so on like this. So whether Hart can be blamed for this, mm, you know, I, we can get into, but certainly it was taken up like this. And this is why it caused such controversy. Now, Mita Ryan, who was a local historian and a biographer of Tom Barry, you know, took up the cudgels and she went and she tried to find, you know, these anonymous interviewees who they might have been. And so she said, well, they couldn't have existed. They were all dead by the time Hart came to have interviewed them and so on. And, it's, and so this thing of Hart talked to dead people is something you often see quoted that he performed seances, you know, all this kind of humorous stuff. But like, it, it also got very bitter. Niall Meehan, who is a professor of journalism in Griffith College in Dublin, wrote extensively on this. And his point was that, first of all, Hart's methodology was pretty shoddy in some respects, I might say. But also that why were some people so willing to take it up, which was the other question. You know, so there's a, there's a lot of arguments here and it becomes about a lot more than just Kilmichael later on. First of all, it became about the Northern Troubles. Then it became about if historians in academia could be trusted, if they had ingrained biases. And so eventually, you know, the, the academic ones, the people who had been colleagues of Hart. Now, Hart was obviously from Canada, but he had studied at Trinity College. The likes of Eve Morrison has kind of fought back. And what Eve Morrison, who has a book coming out about Kilmichael, who has done very good work for oral history, what she would tell you is that the essence of, of what Hart said is vindicated by the discovery of the Chisholm tapes and that Mita Ryan's list of who was at Kilmichael was too narrow and that might be true. I await Eve Morrison's findings, but it, it became a debate about things that weren't really about Kilmichael at all, eventually, I would say. Well, if people can remember back, I think it was 2005, 2006 when this really kicked off. And as you mentioned, there's people there like Niall Meehan and Mita Ryan also John Regan got involved as well, and another group called the Aubain Society was uh, heavily involved. But it really got to the point where people were looking back at Peter Hart's PhD, which formed the basis of the IRA and its enemies, and going back through the footnotes and trying to compare them. And a lot of the interviews that you claim to have spoken to people were saying, were they really the same people who were there and trying to test the accuracy of the statements? It got into as well the whole idea of the the killings in Dunmanway, where it's 10 Protestants had been shot during the truce period and the whole portrayal of Cork Republicanism and 
in a wider sense, like the IRA campaign as sectarian, that this was a sectarian conflict at its heart in the South. And there was obviously a huge amount of pushback against that from historians and um, also, I won't just say Republicans, but, you know, people who, who found that concept insulting and inaccurate. And I wonder, will the 100th anniversary and Eve Morrison's new book, will that reignite some of these debates again? Because people can still find them on the History Ireland website and on different places online, the, the correspondence related to it. Yeah, I mean, the sectarian debate is a different debate, I think, than Carmichael in a way. I mean, Carmichael is not about sectarianism, no matter what way you come at it. Carmichael, I suppose, is about which version you believe you can trust and about, I think, in, in a sense, and the reason that people like Eve Morrison, who was not a revisionist by any inclination herself, get so exercised about it is his suggestion that historians can't be trusted because they're all biased. They're all infected by pro-British revisionism at Trinity College, you know, this kind of thing. The sectarian thing is a wider thing. It is more important in terms of debating what went on at the time. I mean, in fairness to Peter Hart, and the more I go on and the more sources I see, the more critical I would be, to be honest, of, of Peter Hart. But in fairness to him, he did bring up this question. And it is a real question. Like, who had heard before of the 14 people killed in and around in Manway in April 1922, all but one of whom were Protestants? Only for Peter Hart brought it up in a chapter of his book. Now, does that mean I agree with this conclusion that he says Hart tended to these very glib kind of generalizations. These men were shot because they were Protestants, he wrote. I don't quite go for that. And I don't go for the fact that it, the War of Independence was at heart sectarian. And um, I think that was an element of the background music, if you like, that it played a part, but it certainly wasn't the central part. The other thing, though, is, yeah, you know, what, what, it, what it comes down to, again, when you talk about debates like in Michaelis, it comes down to who gets to speak with authority. Right. So if historians can't be trusted, then people like the Albanian Society, you know, would say this, you know, they're all biased and they're all pro-British and so on. Then who gets to speak? And, and there was this thing of, well, local people will get their own history and so on. I guess where it gets very problematic, you know, to use the fashionable word today is that people start to say, well, I don't like what you're saying. You know, I don't like your pro-British bias. So I'm going to go and get my own version. And that's what I believe. And I'm going to call you a liar because I don't like what you're saying. And at its boldest, kind of on the internet, on Twitter, that's what you can get to. And that can become a problem as well. Maybe we might finish by talking about Tom Barry and his career after Kilmichael. Yes, because after Kilmichael, we get into 1921 and the truce and then the Civil War. So where did Tom Barry end up in regards to the Civil War? Yeah, so, I mean, Barry commanded quite a number of actions against Crown forces after Kilmichael notably the Crossbury ambush, but also attacks at Roscarbury, Borgatia House, so on, so on. One of the things that contrary to the legend is that, you know, after Crossbury, basically Barry had to more or less disband the column and they had to go on the run because there was so many military and police forces in the area of West Cork. So, you know, it's not the case they could attack at will. They were pretty much on the run after that from March 1921 up until the truce. And they were only capable of carrying out relatively small actions with the exception of one attack on Roscarbury Barracks. But Barry was made the liaison officer after the truce. So which means that, you know, much to the chagrin of the British, that the, the man they considered a murderer who had massacred the auxiliaries, or so they thought, at Kilmichael, they had to deal with him as an equal at the truce. So we had to met with the British command to make sure the truce was holding for the following six months, which was a bitter pill to swallow for the British. In the Civil War period, Barry is obviously one of these IRA commanders who comes out against the treaty. Now, that's the norm in the south of Ireland. I mean, it's something like 80% of the IRA in the southern division were against the treaty. 
And Barry is eventually elected onto the executive and he's involved in not occupying the four courts, but he's, he's at the four courts and that faction which wants to provoke a new war against the British that's going to bring down the treaty, either by attacking the British garrison in Dublin or by attacking across the border into Northern Ireland. You know, Barry, Barry's youth, I think, and his impetuosity, which were such an advantage as a combat leader, were, were no good at all, I think, in a situation where you had to make politically strategic decisions. So Barry talked about, why don't we bring all the Munster IRA to Dublin and crush the provisional government, you know, which was the pro-treaty government, and then we'll take power in Ireland. You know, this is, it's, it's not a very good suggestion. I mean, even if the IRA, you could manoeuvre the IRA like this, like a regular army, the British would crush them through superior weight of numbers. The British had 6,000 troops in Dublin to start with, uh, and plenty of artillery and tanks and air power, and it would have been a massacre. In the Civil War, Barry was arrested trying to get into the four courts after it was attacked, apparently dressed as a nurse, imprisoned at Gormanstown, he escaped, he got back. And what's very interesting reading his pension application is how badly he fell out in the latter stages of the Civil War with the IRA command. Now, again, I think it goes back to his personality, his kind of bombastic personality and ability to take criticism, but also his youth and proposing things which, which were kind of mad in some ways. So, I mean, Barry did carry out a number of successful actions in the Civil War. He took towns in Cork, Ballinane and Enniskeen. He took Carrigan, Soren, County Tipperary. He took a number of towns in County Kilkenny. So, again, as a combat commander, his record was very good. But he was proposing things like in the spring of 1923, he was proposing that it had been such a bad fight and such a lackluster fight by the IRA, 200 of them should go up to Dublin and take over some buildings until they were wiped out and then they could surrender with honour. And he proposed this at an IRA executive meeting and this is discussed in his pension file. And you, you know, you can imagine them looking at him saying, so you want two of us to go to Dublin and by your admission, half of us will die and the rest of them will then surrender and give up their arms and that'll be the end. And he goes, yes. And they go, why? And he goes, well, that would be the honourable way out. You know, it's, it's that stuff. And then, He's at executive meetings, um, again, as a 24-year-old. He fell out very badly with Liam Lynch, wasn't talking to him by the end. He wanted Lynch to call off the civil war, which maybe was, was sensible, but I think his way of going about it wasn't very diplomatic. And then after the dump arms order in May 1923, he had a blazing row with Frank Aiken, who took over after Lynch was killed. And he wanted apparently to surrender arms at that point to the free state government in order for the civil war to end, because his, you know, after the dump arms order, the IRA were still getting arrested and they were still getting killed in, in some cases. And Barry wanted to surrender all the IRA's weapons. And for that, he was forced to resign from the IRA executive. And there's this big dispute in the pension file over whether he, he resigned from the IRA. But Frank Aiken, who was the chief of staff, maintained that he was effectively kicked out of the IRA in July 1923. He, he was arrested in December and he did some time in prison and he wasn't released until 1924. Well, I don't think he was active at all, really, in the 1920s. And I was talking to Brian Handley about this, and, and um, there was a big roundup of IRA suspects in 1931 by Ono Duffy, the, the Garda Commissioner, just before the election of 1932. And Barry wasn't anywhere on any list. You know, he wasn't active at that time. And he seems to have rejoined the IRA in 1932 after Fianna Fáil came to power. And he seems to have advocated cooperation between the IRA and Fianna Fáil. Apparently, as far as I can make out, Barry's motivation for rejoining the IRA initially was that the Blue Shirts were quite a significant force in West Cork, where he was from. Uh, and he wanted to, to fight back against them. And he was involved in a number of violent clashes. He tried to assassinate some local blue shirts, I believe, in the 1930s, and eventually became the IRA chief of staff, though after Fianna Fáil illegalised the IRA. Like Fianna Fáil legalised the IRA, first of all, then fell out with them in 1934. And Barry himself was convicted on, on two occasions before the military tribunals, which was the special courts under the Fianna Fáil governments for firearms possession and for membership of an illegal organisation. And Barry was also apparently behind the assassination of Somerville, who was a retired 
admiral in West Cork who was giving references to people who wanted to join the Royal Navy. So he apparently, and this is going on Jerry Shannon's article and Sean Russell, apparently did not agree with the proposal for a bombing campaign in England, which Sean Russell was behind. And so he resigned over that. Barry favoured some sort of action in Northern Ireland. But he resigned from the IRA in around 1938. And two years later, he ended up applying for a military pension and briefly joined the Irish Army, Irish State Forces in the emergency during the Second World War. So never a dull moment, really. No, and never a modest moment either. You know, I mean, he was publishing articles in the Kerryman about his daring do, um, you know, throughout the, the 1930s. And, and I think these formed the basis of Guerrilla Days, which was published in 1949. Yes. And one of the things that we can see from like documentaries about Tom Barry, and also if anyone was to go onto YouTube and find the interviews with him, is that he was very open to being interviewed on television and being interviewed by journalists. He wasn't reticent about talking about his role during the War of Independence and Civil War. Yeah, I mean, that's a very shy way of putting it, Carl. You know, he was, he was a relentless self-promoter and uh, full of self-confidence and, and never apologised for a single thing that, that he ever did, you know, quite like Dan Breen in that respect. You know, that was the reason why a lot of people in the IRA and veterans of the IRA from the War of Independence and Civil War didn't like him at all because, you know, he would always talk himself up in his own in events. Now, he did play a significant part in, in combat events, but one thing that's clear in his pension is that he was he was always aggrandizing his own role, uh, and people really resented this, I think. And I mean, just kind of a, as a follow-up, I mean, one point that people have made is, you know, who's heard of, for example, Humphrey Murphy or John Joe Sheehy, who were the Kerry IRA leaders, who did as much fighting as Barry? You know, maybe not quite as skilled at it, but did as much fighting as Barry, or who's heard of, for example, Michael Kilroy or Billy Pilkington? or people like that, other rural IRA leaders who also fought throughout the period from 1919 up through the Civil War. You know, so Barry's image of himself as the archetypal warrior leader of the IRA is partly a creation of his own making. Well, that's true to a large extent that we sort of see the conflict through the eyes of the people who actually wrote down their versions of it. And there are quite a few memoirs of the period, as we mentioned before, obviously Tom Barry, but the likes of Dan Breen and the likes of uh, Ernie O'Malley and different people. But is the onus not on those who didn't write to have written? Are we being overly critical of Tom Barry for laying out his own version of events or over-exaggerating his own role in it? I wouldn't be critical of, of him leaving his testimony. No, of course I wouldn't. And I'm a big admirer of Ernie O'Malley in, in that regard for his memoirs. But the big difference between O'Malley's memoir and Barry, if I was being critical of Barry, is O'Malley's honesty. So, for example, I mean, O'Malley says that his brother joined the British Army in, in World War I and he was going to do the same thing, you know. And he, he talks about how his mind was changed. And O'Malley also talks about how um, he was mistaken in many of his views as an IRA man. He said things like, we were too hard in our idealism. We looked down on ordinary people as if we were above them, you know. And there's none of this kind of self-reflection in, in Barry's account. I remember when I was a teenager and I first read these kind of memoirs, I was more impressed with Barry in some ways, you know, because Barry gave you what you wanted, like action, cowboys and Indians kind of thing. And O'Malley's self-reflection didn't give that to you. But I mean, o O'Malley's is more honest and more rounded kind of portrayal of the period as memoirs skull, whereas Barry's is very, you know, militaristic and very self-aggrandizing to a, to a large degree. And so... You know, there's, there's still people in, in West Cork who revere the memory of Tom Barry, but there's also people 
who are the descendants of people who didn't get on with them, who don't like him as well. And, and this is not so much down to politics as due to his kind of difficult personality, I think. And get back to Kill Michael again. I think now that we're getting to the end of the podcast, I suppose from my feeling, a lot of people who are very critical of Kill Michael in terms of the idea of default surrender and that this was a brutal act that the IRA on the ground, potentially they could have taken surrender of most of these men and chose not to and chose to, in effect, murder them and go outside the rules of engagement that they seem to be largely critical of all Republican action. That Whereas what we're doing today in terms of really going into the details of the Kilmichael ambush, we're not necessarily taking a moral view that it shouldn't have happened or that Republican violence in, in general was, was wrong. I mean, Republican violence happened in a political context and it was to achieve a, a particular political goal. And I would say in this respect, you know, it's better claim to morality perhaps than the massive slaughter of World War One. No one can really figure out what was the objective, um, even at the highest levels. I mean, in terms of the actual violence, I mean, they, you know, it was a very brutal event and prisoners and wounded men were killed. And, you know, it, you'd find that hard to defend. I mean, the only point I'd make is that this is very atypical of, of IRA actions. The typical IRA uh, ambush that came off successfully, prisoners were taken, their weapons were taken, they were sent off, then they were released. And that was much more common than the killing of prisoners. So Kilmichael was very atypical in that regard, although there was one or two other similar incidents. Well, judging by the reputation of the auxiliaries and the black and tans, they probably would have felt that it was a fight to the death one way or the other. It was a killer be killed engagement. Yeah, I mean, you know, like we'll never know exactly what happened to Kilmichael. It was all over in a few minutes. And, you know, there was only 40 odd survivors, if that like Barry's figure again is 36 and it was terribly confused. The adrenaline would have been sky high. Who knows what happened? There was some sort of confused surrender. We can say that with, with a very degree of certainty. John Keegan in his book, The Face of Battle, which is, you know, a, a groundbreaking book on, on how war might have been experienced by an average soldier back in the 1970s, talks about a lot about this act of surrender in World War One and elsewhere. And he says very commonly where there was an act of surrender and then, you know, as appeared to have gone back on, prisoners were then killed because what you're doing by surrendering is you're giving up your ability to kill the enemy. You're asking for their protection on the basis that you're no longer a threat. If you still present a threat and then you try to surrender, you know, you're, you're quite likely to be in trouble. He talks about an event where Australian troops, I think, um, were being fired on by a machine gun in 1917. A white flag was shown in the pillbox, then the machine gun continued to fire. And afterwards, when the Germans tried to surrender again, the British or Australian troops said uh, too late, Joe, and they bayoneted the, the Germans. So, you know, these, these things happen in war. You know, it's more a feature of, of man's inhumanity to man than a political question, I would say. Well, thanks very much, John. And if anyone would like to read more about this, John has recently written an article for theirstory.com about Kilmichael and Tom Barry's pension applications, which well worth a read. So that was John Dorney and... If you would like to listen to this or any previous episodes of the show, you can go to our website, irishhistoryshow.ie. You can follow us on Twitter at Irish History Pod or on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash the Irish History Show. And if you get a chance, please rate and review the show on iTunes or Spotify or whichever platform you get your podcasts on. 
it genuinely really does help us and it makes more people aware of the show and makes it more available so we really appreciate that so on behalf of myself Cahill Brennan and my co-presenter John Dorney until next time thank you very much for listening Radio.ie hosts the Irish History Show podcast because history matters. Radio turns 100 years young this year. Radio's history is powered by Radio Archives. For radio archiving solutions from people passionate about radio, visit radio.ie.